I'm Dr. Scott Lyons, and you're watching or listening to The Gently Used Human. Do you know someone who makes a big deal out of nothing? Making mountains out of molehills? Someone who always seems to be in some conflict or challenge, like the hardships of life always seem to find them. For them, there's always something. And their words and actions are so intense, exaggerated, and overwhelming. So, do you know someone addicted to drama? Of course, we all do. But what is an addiction to drama? What are the symptoms and how does it form? And how do we help people heal from it? Or how do we take care of ourselves after being pulled into their whirlwind of chaos? In this episode, I speak with Dr. Nicole LaPera, also known as the holistic psychologist, about the actual dependency on stress, crisis, and chaos. We dive deep into the root causes of an addiction to drama and how these conditions are being replicated on a mass scale through media platforms. On some level, we all interrupt our peace, create unnecessary stories in our head or gossip, or even find calmness or stillness difficult. Could these everyday things actually be part of our own addiction to drama? Let's find out. This special episode was recorded live in front of an audience who had the opportunity to ask questions as Nicole and I compassionately unpacked our own propensity for trauma and how to heal the deep underlying trauma that fuels it. Dr. Nicole LaPera was trained in clinical psychology at Cornell University and the New School for Social Research and studied at the Philadelphia School of Psychoanalysis. She is a holistic psychologist whose work addresses the connection between the mind, body, and soul, incorporating overall lifestyle and psychological wellness practices. She is the creator of the hashtag self-healers movement, where people from around the world are joining together in a community to take healing into their own hands. As a clinical psychologist, Dr. LaPera often found herself frustrated by the limitations of traditional psychotherapy. Wanting more for her patients and for herself, she began a journey to develop a united philosophy of mental, physical, and spiritual wellness that equips people with the interdisciplinary tools necessary to heal themselves. After experiencing the life-changing results herself, she began to share what she learned with others, and soon, the holistic psychologist was born. Nicole, turn it over to you to get the ball rolling. Absolutely. I'm so grateful, Scott, to be here with you. You are someone whose work really speaks to me, not only on a personal level, but so much of my clinical journey as I talk often of, you know, really seeing limitations in the way that I was working, really feeling myself very stuck, very disempowered. And, you know, you're really speaking to in so many ways why it is that so many of us are stuck in for the context of this conversation, as I myself, as a personal human, am in these drama cycles that really in, in so many ways are embedded within us, not only in our minds, in our bodies. And of course, I'm sure we're going to dive into unpacking what we mean by all of this, though, really understanding that, in my opinion, gifts us, the collective, your community, my community, with the awareness for so many of us that can be relieving in and of itself, where I think we feel so shameful when we don't have the language to understand why it is that maybe we're the person addicted to drama or we're interacting with a world of people addicted to drama and 
probably backed into a similar corner that I found myself. So much insight and awareness, but not able to really translate that into action. So thank you for the gifts of this insight, of this information, and now of what I imagine is going to be this life-changing book for all of the readers out there. And I think a really great place to start is let's talk a bit about being disempowered, being, you know, what I would my language would be in a reactive kind of state. And you write a beautiful line very early on in your book that I very much personally resonate with, which is you say, for most of my life, I assumed bad things just happened to me. This became the story of my life. And I want to speak to a little bit of, of what you mean when you say that, this idea of bad things happening and how it is that we become stuck in those stories and what they mean then for us as we continue on into our adulthood and different choices that we're making, driven, of course, by these deep-rooted beliefs. Yeah, I think it's fair to say, thanks, Nicole, for that intro, by the way. And it's such a gift and pleasure to be here with you, as always. You know, we we all face challenges. We all face frustrations. And there's a way in which we can begin to feel like it's suffocating us, like it's always following us. And some of it is there's a lot of bad things and challenges that do compound in our lives. And there's also a way of interpreting that as more intensified, more extreme, and more personalized, almost feeling victimized by the compounded stresses or the stresses that are happening into our lives. And so, you know, certainly in my life and what brought me to this book, I felt like, oh, why is there always something? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is such a common phrase for some of us or some of our parents or some of our friends. or <laughs> And it's hard to see anything but the challenges, the stressors, the negative aspects of life. And when that's all we are attuned to, when that's all we're able to focus on, it truly feels like no matter what we do, life is against us. And there's a way in which that really forms an identity, a way of walking in the world. It will get to this, I know, but it actually changes our physiology as well to that is almost how we will always see the world until we rewire it. And so it's like a confirmation that the world is against us. So it's easy to justify, yeah, yeah, of course, bad things do always happen to me because that's what I'm attending to. That's what I'm. my attention is locked in on. And it took a lot to break that. And I know we've we've talked about that. It's it's not an easy cycle to break, partly, as I said, we'll get into, because our physiology, our very sensory system, our eyes, our ears, our smell, our taste, our touch, are all attuned to looking for the threat. And so we find it. Or if we don't find it, we seek it and create it. I, interestingly, and I'm shaking my head, I put my hand up when you said always something, because that very much was a family mantra. And that was our belief. It was recited very directly in those ways when in childhood, stressful things would happen, whether or not it was a result of living in a city with the increased noise, the increased possibility to be at risk for violence that happened, or within my home where there was a lot of health related concerns and issues and a focus on Mm -hmm. that inherent risk of the next sickness or how it is that a family member, you know, could be harmed through ill health. And regardless, it really did translate to not only, and I think this is an important caveat that is helpful to speak to, especially at the beginning of this talk, when we have that belief and that mindset, at least in my opinion, I would imagine you are agreeing, 
it does live in our bodies. It is mapped onto the lived experience of at one time, right? Being in so many ways a victim of those early circumstances from the reality that we didn't get to necessarily choose where it was that we were born geographically or what, you know, societal factors or what intergenerational factors, all things that I imagine we're going to dive even deeper into that impact, even our physiology, our ability to deal with the stress in our world. So I think it's important to say, and, you know, I'd imagine I open it up to you and your response in terms of really honoring that when it is wired into our physiology, that is a testament to these things did happen. Always something did create stress that at one time was intolerable and around which a lot of us were under supported. So this is where we can have the conversation of acknowledging the reality that we can't just explain away, white knuckle away, affirm away what is quite literally wired into our biology because it was a lived experience for us at one time. Yeah. And it's so easy. And I think in our general idea of an addiction to drama to be like, oh, they're just looking for attention. They're just blowing things out of proportion. And it is from the outside, more intensified and extreme responses and engagement with things. And there's a way in which we can define drama as an unnecessary turmoil and unnecessary chaos. And an addiction is the dependency on it. But that's because we're mostly trying to diagnose it or describe it from the outside. And what we're doing so early on in this conversation, which I love, is saying, actually, the outer perception of it is quite different from being entrapped in the need for chaos, for crisis, the dependency on it for what we'll we'll understand as an actual survival mechanism, as an adapted survival strategy to exist in some of the circumstances you said, transgenerational trauma, early developmental issues, environmental chaos, all those have contributions to our physiology and we have to adapt to them somehow. And sometimes that adaption will look like an addiction to drama. Yeah. And I'm I'm happy yeah. and I think it's important to set this, you know, what I would call a very compassionate framework based in, again, the awarenesses that we're both describing here, which is that these cycles that many of us, myself included, can find ourselves in, you know, is coming based in that best attempt, that adaptation, that fit into circumstances that we lived, environments that we lived, resources that we might not have had access to at one time, because especially, and I see this and I don't know how it is within your community, even just the title of your book, right? Addicted to Drama. I think It can cause a lot of resistance when we hear, especially if we think about or if someone infers that that label applies to us. I think it can be a very shameful thing to acknowledge, as I have had to on my own journey and say, yes, I have a lot of this addiction to drama. I have a lot of this preference or familiarity and adaptations that have gone along with this familiarity based in this chaotic, more stressful experience. So I think it's important to locate all of this in a compassionate space, because again, just speaking from my own experience, I didn't want to hear that even from my closest, most supportive loved ones, even trying to shine a bit of that mirror on me and say, you know what, Nicole, you do seem to be stuck in these cyclones of, of chaos, of stress, and you do seem to you know, not be satisfied when you're not in this. And it felt very shameful. I wanted to defend and say, no, that's not the case at all. 
And my hope is that, you know, giving some of you listening this language um, to be able to maybe shift from those shameful moments and that maybe even shameful self-identity to acknowledge and hold a bit of space for the adaptation that these behaviors really and patterns are. Yeah. Thank you for saying that because as we both have experienced this propensity, this pattern, and we might actually discover we all have the propensity to dive into some of these techniques, drama techniques, which are actually more about avoidance than they are about getting attention. And when we recognize, oh, I, I could see myself perhaps in, in doing that, again, it's the unnecessary, it's the exaggerated, it's the intensified emotional reaction to stuff, but it serves a purpose. It's not just in and of itself happening. It serves a really functional purpose. And one of those purposes is to distract ourselves. And you might think to yourself, as I did when I was doing my research, wait, why would I distract myself with more suffering? Like that doesn't make sense. And as we'll talk about in the book, drama is not about making sense. It's about making sensation, enough sensation that becomes a really powerful distractive tool from the underlying pain, from the underlying hurt, from the underlying things that haven't been processed. And we haven't had the time, the space, the permission, the support to metabolize or process or even know how to go back to those. Maybe we can say a few ways in which maybe in our own propensities, but also in ways we've seen as clinicians, the ways that drama might show up from yes. maybe the outside viewer in our own way as well. Absolutely. And I see Bina is asking a, a similar question that I was going to dive into next, which Perfect. is, can you define a bit? And of course, I will speak to my own personal lived and clinical experiences in a second. But what kind of, in your opinion, Scott, is the difference between drama, right? Or a normal reaction to stress or to upsetting yeah. experiences and being asked a version of that, which is what is an example of someone in dramatic mode versus of course, again, a quote unquote, normal, natural experience of stress or any other upsetting emotions. How can we make that distinction? One simple question we can ask is how much emotion, how much energy is needed to adapt in this moment? So we know that a stress response is all about adaptation. And if I need to pick up this glass of water, I have a pretty good sense that I don't need to use both hands and go <laughs> to lift it up, right? But if I don't have that accurate barometer of how much energy, of how much emotion is needed to execute an action, to adapt, to be in the flow of life, that's a pretty good indicator. But we'll get more concrete. Like we all, like I said, have different ways. And we know the difference between a normal stress response and an addiction to drama by the fact that our response is reflexive. The intensity, the exaggeration, the having used both hands to pick up that glass, I don't have choice in the matter. I don't have agency. There is a lack of control that is inherent in an addiction. Where when I have agency, when I have the choices or the ability to see what are my choices, and even know that I have choices, what are my choices, and the ability to execute choices, that's when we know we are in power versus when we're in the entrapment and the dependency of an addiction. And ways it can show up, there's a multitude of ways. It can show up as 
Let me think of a recent example I did just to be really transparent and honest. I got a disappointing text message from a date. It just didn't feel like there was much in there. And it's easy to start going, oh, this is what they meant. This is what was behind the text. And then I start to hear my own inner critic go, you don't really deserve to be loved. And then it goes from just that small seed of disappointment to a whole flood of experiences and emotions and inner critics. And I'm revved up. And then without even knowing it, I'm thinking about another friend that I've totally created a scenario for in my head. And I'm in an argument with them about how I'm disappointed with them for not showing up to something that hasn't even happened. And you hear it's like rolling down a hill. You can't even catch up with yourself anymore. The kinetic energy of drama has taken over you. Like something is puppeting you and you are in the throes of stress. You are having a physiological response, even though it never actually happened. Because that's the interesting thing about stress is it doesn't actually have to happen in real life for us to have a physiological response. Every time we go into a story, a narrative, whether it's real, whether we made it up, we are having a physiological and emotional response in the same way as though it was real. Every time we replay that story, every time we vent and share it with this person and then that person and then this person again and slightly even change the story, we are going through the physiological stress response of it each and every time. So that's one example. Nicole, I'll pass it to you and then we can volley. I think, Scott, what you're really beautifully describing, right, is the internal narration of our life that is happening. 24 hours of the day and to create that space to be in power, as you're very beautifully describing, you know, as I talk with my community quite often, it's becoming conscious of that internal running narrative that it's not necessarily the thing that happened or didn't happen that's causing our visceral reactivity in that moment. It's the interpretation, the lens that we've ran that through. And what I started to see very early on is the lens that I would run happenings or not happenings in my life, typically in my relationships through was some version. My narrative always revolved back to this idea of how my needs aren't being considered in that moment, whether it's something practical that was left undone in the home. And right here's someone relying on me and my energetic resources to do that thing because they didn't do it. Or if it's emotional, you're not here in support of me. You don't just know what's what's wrong. You're not asking. You're not supporting me emotionally in the right way. So reacting then and being able to turn that focus or illuminate, if you will, my internal world allowed me to see that things are very neutral in happenings or not happenings. So really simplify it. What upset me, which is very understandable now why I react it from a wound with upset, right? Whether or not I start to scream and yell about how you don't care about me or one of the ways I've learned how to deal with, you know, being hurt or feeling vulnerable and not feeling cared for was to separate or to remove myself, to decide I don't actually need you at all. I'm going to go lock myself in the bedroom. And so for me, it's becoming that wound in that moment. Of course, it's understandable. If I'm feeling not cared for, not tended to by especially someone that I want that level of security, then now my reaction is understandable that without that space to see the the role we've played, not to shame ourselves for that role, my 
not considered story does have an origin in that childhood environment where in that stressful daily lived experience, I didn't have an emotionally available caregiver of no fault of her own because my mom too was impacted by all of the generations that came before her, the environment that she grew up in, though it is understandable now that I did not feel considered. So when we react from that wound, again, I think this is another space to grant ourselves that compassion, though when we do see that story and how that created then that very understandable pain that then I tried to manage through explosive reactivity or disconnection and separation. Now I have that space that you're beautifully describing to be in power, to understand the oldness of that story and to leave myself the opportunity to make a new choice in that moment. But that's one of my most common ones to this day. I still have And I think that's important to acknowledge here as well, because I think so many of us are seeking that point of done, of healed, of where that wound no longer comes up and bears its head. And it's still in this moment in real time, I can notice that filter. And I still feel some degree of upset and wounded in those moments where I'm not feeling tended to, or I'm not feeling considered by the environment around me or my partners. Yeah. Thank you for just humanizing that journey that there isn't necessarily a point where that reflexive action of revving yourself up will just stop. It'll just become less, or you'll have this space that's just so beautifully described to catch yourself in the action. It's like, oh, here I am pouring myself another drink or lighting up that next cigarette or whatever it is. Here I am driving myself to gamble. And the space to suddenly go, is this what I need? Is this what I want? what am I really hungry for? And I think to go back to that example that I was giving of where I got that text message and then suddenly I'm rolling down the drama hill and feeling like just in a spiral. And, you know, I have been able to get pretty far, but I didn't call any friends. I thought about calling a friend and being like, can you believe them? And, you know, getting them roped up bringing them into my tornado of chaos and feeding off their energy like a battery pack to keep rolling down the hill. Ooh, we know that one, don't we? (laughs) But what it does, the faster and further I'm rolling down that hill of drama or spiraling out of control, the further I am away from me. It is an extreme replication of self-abandonment, which is most often this original wound that even Nicole was referring to. And I am nowhere near that point where I could go, oh, that disappointment of not getting that text that I want feels heavy in my heart. And I'm going to be with it probably for a minute or so is all it would actually take to metabolize through. And then I'd probably be done. But the pattern of avoiding that level of contact with my own emotional core hurt and pain and trauma is so familiar that I spiral myself up and out, that I push myself down that hill of drama, or I find ways that other people can push me down that hill to avoid that contact. It's such a brilliant way of being distant from our own pain because It's so easy to turn it around and justify the circumstances to which we have been part of or created or sought to keep us from that distraction. So there's another layer in which our justification for our reaction really solidifies, locks us into that protection mode. 
I'm shaking my head so much, Doc, because so much of what you're sharing is, you know, kind of mapping on in my personal evolution and journey where, I mean, I was that person who did seek not only that validation that I was wronged, right? That I was, it was appropriate to feel as I do upset how I was not being considered. I was the person who sought that actual affirmation from my friends. And I've actually shared many apologies to, you know, some relationships that have seen me through these evolutions because for the large majority of my relationships up until my late twenties, early thirties were based in this shared stress cycles where I would go to friends typically when I was out for happy hour with them, when we're trying to, you know, have enjoyment, when I'm calling them 911 in an emergency, usually because of some issue I was having in my relationship, being a serial monogamist, always having that partner that also gave me the issue, the problem and calling the friend or out to, you know, drinks or our, our night out away from the relationship. My relationship was all I could focus on. And I spent a lot of time kind of bonding, quote unquote, over this shared crisis where I was seeking that affirmation. I wanted the person across from me to say, you know what, Nicole, you're absolutely right. Why are you in the relationship with this loser who's not meeting your needs, not understanding that it was me? Like you're saying, I was so disconnected from what my needs even were that I gave my relationship no opportunity or myself in relationship, no opportunity to make choices in alignment with my needs, which I think is an important shift. I just want to take in the conversation right here, right now, because it's often not just the bad things we do, right? Drinking too much, eating too much, or doing things that are more traditionally self-harming for a lot of us. And this is why I was so confused for so long. Many of my adaptations in coping to keep myself distanced from what I really wanted, what I really needed, how I really felt was actually societally approved and validated through achieving, through doing. And I know you write in your book of your own kind of habitual tendency, very similar to you to perform. That's even language that was used in my household. Oh, Nicole's performing again, always performing. And again, I think for a lot of us, that performance, especially when it's mapped onto what traditionally in our cultures or society has been defined as quote unquote achievement or that golden box to check. I think a lot of times that can confuse us because we're still separate from ourselves. And this is where I was left as I was nearing my thirties with that pit of despair, with that pit of resentment where I didn't actually feel connected to the life that I was living, even though society told me that once I got to this part, right, where I hung my shingle or I was in the relationship that I was in, where I had choice to decide where I lived, why didn't I feel in fulfillment? And for me, it was really unpacking where disconnection began and understanding that even things that are socially validated can be that form of distraction, to use your words. Yeah. And I think growing up as a performer in the arts and even sort of recognizing the overperforming in relationships or performing where there's a dissonance, where there's a disconnect between the authentic self and what we think other people need to see us, what we think other people want to hear in order to maybe come back around and witness or not leave us or abandon us. So there was a lot of ways I was overperforming to keep people's attention in hopes that they would stop abandoning me that maybe this time they would stay. And I think we both have shared this too, Nicole. Like I thought after every degree I've gotten, after every letter after my name, it would heal something. I grew up, I had severe learning disabilities, which were very much a reflection of my trauma as opposed to just my physiological challenges. 
and was told very early on that I would be lucky if I graduated high school. In fact, I remember being in high school and being pulled into a meeting with all the teachers and my parents, and they said, it's best not to have hope for Scott. And thank goodness I didn't have a lot of appreciation for authority figures. <laughs> I mean, I think that was my saving grace where I'm like, no, you suck. <laughs> I was more like, well, I'm going to show you. But I also internalized that, severely internalized it. Every paper I wrote, every degree I got, I was like, oh, this is going to be it. This is going to be the performance achievement that finally says you are enough. And it wasn't. I remember walking down the aisle for my PhD and going, ooh, I know the moment she hands me that diploma, I'm going to be healed. And she handed me the diploma and I felt as empty as I have always felt. That void did not get filled. Now, I had spent a lot of time filling that void with a lot of things, specifically chaos and crisis and the distractors that could fill that deep void where I didn't exist. And that is absolutely a representation, that void. I mean, I talk about it in the book and Nicole and I have talked about, like, I referred to myself as a kid, to my parents, often as a walking ghost. I wanted to know why I didn't feel three-dimensional. And they had no idea what I was talking about. I didn't know what I was talking about. It's a bizarre thing for a kid to say. But I was such a kinesthetic learner. I was a mover. I was a dancer. I was like, I don't exist in all these ways here and there. And would refer to myself as a walking ghost. But truly, there was so much self-abandonment of chasing other people. There was so much hurt and early traumas and the protective mechanism that we all have inherently in us, which is to disassociate or numb, to help seal and protect that pain. But what it also does is it creates a separateness. That numbness created a separateness from myself, and it created a very severe separateness from other people and the world in which the belief system that came from that separateness was, I don't belong. I don't belong to me. I don't belong to other people. I am an alien, for lack of a better term. But like this sense of non-belonging became the overall theme in my life. And kind of what you were saying, Nicole, everything that everyone would do, despite what they would actually do, reaffirmed that belief system that I didn't belong that they could never meet my needs or see me. And they couldn't. I was invisible to myself and to other people. I was so sealed off unintentionally from my own mechanism of needing to be protected. I didn't have the protection in my family. So I created it in myself, which was a seal that took so many years to slowly open the windows of. I'm resonating so much and I'm thinking back to childhood where the feeling was very visceral. I would have a recurring nightmare that wasn't so much the visual story that I would remember. It was more of the felt pressure. I would always wake up with this feeling of almost like a heavy brick on my chest. And I think that really represents right this inner hole. And for me, it was a bit confusing because I had kind of external narratives in my family of origin that helped make a little bit of sense of why I felt so different. At my core, I was born to older parents. 
my mom was 42. My dad was 45. I walked when I looked around, you know, when I was in grade school and in young adult schooling, I would, you know, notice very early. Oh, my parents are older than typical peers, my age. So that already separated me a bit. I had two siblings. One was 15 and one was 18 when I was born. So, right. I'm already different in that sense. So it, you know, logically, okay, of course I feel different in my family then because in these objective ways, I am a bit different in some ways, but not understanding that the reason I felt different was because of that lack of belonging, of no ill intention of those caregivers that I just described, you know, of them trying to make me feel separate. The reality of it is, is they each themselves felt distant from themselves. So when we need to and talk about, you know, parenting and creating safety and security so that we can, as you acknowledge, one of the core needs we all share that I very much agree with is being seen and being heard, right? So few of us understand that that's just not an intention that gets set and then that happens in in a home, there's a lot of other factors that create that safety and that security for having caregivers who can be present to the current moment, allow for difference and curiosity about another unique individual who's developing with different quirks and thoughts and beliefs and perspectives and choices and ways of expressing that that goes beyond just wishing that Mm -hmm. for our children. That goes into how are we actually showing up to create that space so that one can begin to feel belonged, can feel that connection, can feel that reflection back of curiosity, of interest in being seen and in being heard. A lot of our parents are very well-intentioned, came from generations where they know they did not have those need met, but aren't aware of the physiological process that really does build the foundation from creating that safety and that security in, in the homes in which we're living. Yeah. You know, when we talk about early developmental trauma, I know for myself, it's been really important not to do the blame game, to allow myself the anger or the frustration or the disappointment, all of the emotions I didn't allow myself to have, to have those. But I found that if I was attending to my parents in that way that you're describing, I was actually revving myself up. I was going back into more narrative to keep myself away from me. I was utilizing them. I was using them and the process of what happened well after I had done a lot of healing from it. And so I love what you're saying because there eventually is in the healing process room for empathy to go, whoa, that was them doing the best they could and it wasn't enough. Both are true. And holding that complexity, the complexities of multiple truths is actually a beautiful sign of healing out of trauma. When we're stuck in a truth, when our focus is only on that this is the only possibility, it is a great example that we might have some unprocessed experiences to navigate. I really appreciate you speaking to that because I know in my own healing and deconditioning and seeing this pattern, I very much utilize what I thought was compassion, understanding, right? Mm -hmm. Understanding someone's limitations as gifting them then with a free pass and not allowing the hurt that I felt, the need for a boundary or for a shift or a change in dynamic to have space because I would squash that or suppress that as I had done, though what I thought was in a very selfless way, right? I'm so understanding of where you're coming from and why you're causing me harm that I've actually washed away that space for myself to say, 
that can be true. And like you're saying, holding space for the duality, you know, the complexity of many different feelings, many different awarenesses in one moment. And so much of my journey has been actually hitting pause on that habitual tendency to just say, oh, it's okay. It doesn't matter how I'm feeling because I can see and understand why you're behaving or reacting in a harmful way, giving myself actually the space to hit pause and say, while I can see and understand, it doesn't make my pain or how I'm experiencing you or what I need in this moment to shift any less valid. And I think a lot of us can have that part of our own conditioning, which is not to give ourselves and our feelings about it, this space. And we do think sometimes we're doing it in service of healing, getting to forgiveness, though in reality, that is the healing in and of itself is to create that space for ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, it's just bypassing. It's another form of self-abandonment, which is replicating often what is present in very deep within the core of an addiction to trauma. I want to take a moment to give a loud shout out to The Embody Lab, which is one of the most incredible resources for body-based and somatic therapies. This show is all about healing, and The Embody Lab does exactly that. Whether you're on your own journey of transformation and discovery, or enhancing your skill sets in your career as like a coach or a therapist, a body worker, or really any career where you are supporting other gently used humans, the Embody Lab is your place for deep, inspiring, and impactful workshops, certificates, masterclasses, and an incredible community of like-minded folks. I love the Embody Lab, and so do so many other people that call it a platform to come home to over and over again. The Embody Lab is giving my listeners an exclusive offer, a one-time 10% off code to enhance your embodied well-being. All you have to do is go to theembodylab.com and use the code GENTLYUSE10 at checkout. You talk about another kind of push-pull scenario where acknowledging the, the tension between simultaneously wanting connection and at the same time, rejecting. So I think this is a beautiful place to also yeah. invite you to speak to, again, living in that space for different realities, how and what you mean in moments where you say we can feel both. I want to connect and I also feel I want to reject that connection. Yeah. We'll go back for a moment and say one of the ways to identify the difference between addiction to drama and just a stress response or a response to emotion is certainly in the throes of drama there really isn't nuance. There's like one major emotion and it's anger or rage and that's all there is. And we're pulling whatever evidence we can in and other people into it to keep it fueling. We are feeding off the emotion as opposed to metabolizing and processing it as a means to heal and move forward and learn and gain meaning. That's an important distinction. And so as we get into talking about relationships, and Nicole, you you described it, relationships are such a beautiful container <laughs> to deposit one's addiction to drama <laughs> into <laughs> and get what you need out of it to maintain that propensity. And one of the things that happens as part of that trauma response, like I said, is there's the core pain. We numb out and 
we don't numb out, we numb in, we numb around, we numb out. Yeah, there's a lot of ways in which numbing might emerge and show up, but into honored as a means of protection. And there's a lot of boundary ruptures that happen. Like my desire to make sure someone doesn't leave me again, I'm going to violate my own boundary. I'm going to rupture my own boundary and extend out of it, hoping that someone will come to me. I'm going to self-abandon myself. That can easily look like an anxious, avoidant attachment style. I'm going to let people kind of come in and violate my boundaries to breach my boundaries as a means of trying to find connection as well. So there's our own way, in addition to truly other people and stimulus in the world, challenging or violating or rupturing our boundaries. When we have this numbness and this boundary challenge, which means we're no longer in an adaptive, flexible boundary. Boundaries are not about saying yes or no. Absolutely not. Again, that's an extreme. That's a polarity. Boundaries are about how much yes, how much no. They're about choice, adapting to every circumstance to have choice about how much is coming in, how much is being allowed to express out. And in these experiences, especially in early trauma, or if boundaries were never modeled for us to begin with, we don't have that modulation, that ability to have choice about how much is coming in and out. So those with an addiction to drama feel overstimulated and understimulated simultaneously because they don't have choice in what's coming in and what's getting to be expressed out. In how that shows up in relationships is we all inherently want relationship. That doesn't have to be with one person. You can have 10 people. I'm open to everything. But the belonging itself is our most natural pain reliever. I'm going to say that again. Our sense of belonging (laughs) is the most powerful natural pain reliever. And one of the most painful things is ruptures in relationship. That even can include with ourself and with other people, which I said is inherently part of an addiction to drama. So those with an addiction to drama live in a constant state of dis-ease, pain, that is part of the foundation of who and how they experience themselves. So there's a desire to connect, to get that endorphic response, to get the pain relief. And part of what happened in that sealing off of oneself that comes with the numbness is they don't have the capacity to lower the drawbridge of themselves to allow for intimacy. Because intimacy for those individuals feels incredibly dangerous. Intimacy would lead to closeness, to contact, to feeling. And the things that they are trying to survive from is not to feel all that pain and all that trauma. So an actual relationship, and a relationship that has bi-directionality, I can feel you, you can feel me, and it's happening simultaneously. So dangerous. And we might be thinking, whoa, why would that be dangerous? But it feels like death because the very thing it is doing is in conflict with the very survival mechanism that is the operating system. And so there's that push and that pull 
I want you here, but whoa, that feels dangerous. And I'm going to create jealousy. I'm going to create cheating. I'm going to create fights. I'm going to have fast and furious beginnings, fast and furious ends to make sure it never reaches that point of absolute danger. I say that and it breaks my heart just even to name it because I lived it, but it's also so true for many of us who are in a process of survival. Even, you know, hearing you and language I often use too is really talking about how evolutionarily driven these habits are. Like when we say words like survival and when we kind of map onto how incredibly important connection is, especially in our earliest years where our nervous systems can't regulate on their own, where there is, you know, even scientific evidence to really highlight, because for a very long time, having physically present caregivers where my financial needs in my family were more or less met. I had a roof over my head. I had consistent food on the table. I, you know, there wasn't any egregious moments of neglect or abusive behavior. So I was really left without the language to understand that I was still abandoned in a way, an emotional abandonment, especially in childhood, again, where we need, even from a physiological perspective, that other nervous system to help create safety. When our own stress response is overwhelming our physical bodies, being abandoned emotionally in those moments actually activates in our brain the same pathways as physical pain. Right. So now when we're talking about all of the layers of protection, I was that person who couldn't understand why I could find myself objectively in relationship after relationship, yet with the same voiced, very times yelled from the mountaintops complaint, which is, I don't feel close to you because while I was in relationship, I was holding a hand out and demanding someone, sometimes even with daggers on my palms to come close and hug me and to create that feeling of closeness, not understanding that while we're all wired to need that, So many of us become wired in it's not being a familiar state and not having that closeness, that security of emotional connection. So even though logically you could read that, you know, we're all wired up to have relationships, it doesn't mean that those feel safe for us. And it doesn't mean that we're allowing, again, this is where it becomes, in my opinion, a physiological conversation to allow connection. One has to be in a state of nervous system connection, open, available for that connection. It's not even a matter of me having picked the wrong people who couldn't open up to me emotionally. It was more a matter of, I was shut down. I was not connected to myself. I wasn't open for emotional connection. So while I, like I imagine many of you did point the finger to the wrong person I was picking, at some point I really did have to see that I was holding up that daggered palm. And I was like, you're beautifully describing of two minds about desperately wanting and needing connection that we all want and need to not only survive, but to thrive in life. Yet at the same time, I was so wired in protection against that. It didn't matter who or what was around me and available. I wasn't safely open for connection. You're so beautifully articulating this way of going, oh, it's about them. And that that allows me to stay in the story, the narrative, and even the fight of it without having to go into the vulnerability of contact that I might be contributing to my own hurt, my own suffering, my own pain. Because that in itself is a protective mechanism. No one wants, you know, when you're in an adaptive survival response, like an addiction to drama, you're not going to have too often a voice that says, hey, this is you, you're responsible, or you're contributing to this, because that would not support the adaptive survival mechanism. 
And certainly anyone, as you were talking about, like friends before, perhaps saying, I think this might be you. (laughs) (laughs) There's no way to take that in. In the same way, for those of us who have a propensity for drama, and, and again, we might discover that we all have some availability, usage of tools, and we'll get into that a bit more, but we might find that we, oh, I mean, I, let me just say, we're, we're all doing our best. <laughs> and these adaptive survival strategies are, I just want to go back for a moment again and say they are us doing our best with the circumstances we have, with the conditions we have developed into, and how they manifest, whether it's in these extremes of relationships and these ways of overcomplicating tasks and gossiping and venting and feeling kind of sad and then putting on an even sadder song, and then you're saturated in the sadness. Like Those are all certain strategies. Again, they're just ways of going how can I just stay above the contact point of what it is I'm feeling? Because who knows, once I touch that, what it might open up. And there's a belief system that if I open that up, the pain that it's going to cause to open that up is probably greater than avoiding it. And all the things that I might be doing in my, with my friends, with my partners, to myself, as a consequence of avoiding it. And Nicole, you were talking about, you know, co-regulation, that process of early in life when an adult's presence and we experience their presence and feel seen and witnessed by it. It's an inherent part of that process that allows us to learn how to self-regulate. And it's not like, I'm not here to blame my parents or blame anyone's parents, because there are a lot of reasons, a lot of absence of resources, culturally, finances, support systems, lack of safety in a city, even that prevents someone from being present, which then prevents them from co-regulating, which is I'm with you in a way that says, I got you. Not what you have is wrong. Not what you have is I'm going to take on and deal with. It's I got you. Here's what a container feels like to process and metabolize. And then self-regulation is that. Oh, I remember in an embodied way what it feels like to have someone say, I got you. There's a container here that whatever you're having, whatever you're emotionally going through, you can actually hold it or get resources to, to process and move through it, to glean something from it, meaning-making perhaps. And so if there was never the co-regulation to process our own experiences, likely there was never any self-regulation. And here we are with an addiction to drama where we see an absence of self-regulation and a terror that comes with the possibility of co-regulation, a terror. (laughs) And I think sometimes even, you know, we, from a very well-intentioned place, you know, sometimes we try to, and I think we confuse what empathy is, that holding of space to be seen and heard and whatever it is that's happening. And sometimes we kind of overcompensate and we try to buffer our loved ones, obviously children include it, right? From harm by immediately solving their problem or anticipating a problem and creating a stress-free quote unquote, imagined existence. And very often times from this, you know, place of, well, I want to 
give my children the resources. I want them not to have these difficult emotional experiences. So I almost become what many of us might have heard referred to or see in ourselves and our parenting, this kind of helicopter, right? Mode of by anticipating the problem and solving it before it even becomes an issue, not realizing, and some of us even experience this in our relationships where just speaking from my own lived experience, when I'm in upset, the most frustrating thing is to immediately hear how from your perspective, my problem could be avoided or solved. That's not what we want in that moment. Though I imagine the person offering that immediate solution, right, is coming from a very well-intentioned place, though oftentimes a very selfish place because the upset they're feeling, the dysregulation, their inability, often based in their own childhood experiences to hold that space, can on the surface look like it's them, well, just trying to help us and provide a solution that we can't see. Though, again, from being the person seeking that support, we just want to be seen and heard just like in childhood. It's not about our parents anticipating and solving problems for us. It's like you're beautifully describing, Scott, creating that space, that safety, that container where we can try on for size our perspective, our instincts, our intuition, of course, in a safe, boundaried way. Though I think this is, again, another area where we think something is empathy or we think something is emotional support. And in reality, we're reacting more often than not to our own discomfort that's so beneath the surface, as opposed to creating that safe container of space. Yeah. So well said. I am feeling a hit of something I want to say, and it's not quite in flow, but I want to go there is I want to go back to that idea that drama is not about making sense. It's about making sensation. Yes. And There's a way in which we talked about that pain, that numbness creates kind of a frozenness, like you're not receiving as much, you're not taking in as much of the world. And Apple doesn't have this beautiful, flavorful experience in the same way that it could. And so we try to create scenarios as well to create sensations that rise above the threshold of numbness. And that reaffirms that we are alive, that even if it's a brief moment, we matter. And whether it's the technique of pulling everyone else into my drama to feel connected for a moment, because that is the safest way for those who are addicted to drama. And this is, I'll link this now to our relational talk or theme is if you are in sync with me, Because those of us who have experienced an addiction drama feel out of sync with the world. Our internal dis-ease, anxiety, feeling that there's something always going to happen. And walking around with that wherever you go, even in a meditation class, even in a yoga class, even in a garden, it is present. And so there's a sense of being out of sync. Now, if I go to that garden and I'm feeling particularly out of sync, particularly feeling that dis-ease, that discomfort, that anxiety that's really present in me. And everyone out there feels different or out of sync. It's going to actually activate my sense of non-belonging. So what do I do? I involve everyone in my chaos. I get you involved. Hey, (laughs) did you see that those flowers were not cut yesterday? We paid a lot of money for this botanical garden. And there's a lot of strategies I can pull you in. And the moment your stress response is in par with mine, ooh, I feel seen. I feel heard. Not so literally, but actually physiologically. I feel in sync. 
the chaos of the environment all of a sudden feels, ah, oh, yeah. I mean, Nicole, we both lived in New York. What if, I what was if, just <laughs> shaking my head thinking of that like immediate connection and how yeah. I was a city girl at heart. You weren't going to drag me screaming yeah. out of a city. And now I feel that disconnection by city anxiety energy felt home yeah. for so long until my body shifted. And that's, I think, a great example. Yeah. We both kind of moved out of New York, maybe a year or two apart. And it's like, ooh. It took me a while, like my withdrawal symptoms from the intensity. I was like, why are things so slow? Why are people walking so slow on the street? Why are people driving so slow? And even like my own internal physiology going, something is wrong if we're moving this slow. And I went back and visited New York recently and I was like, why are they all moving so fast? <laughs> are they all anxious? <laughs> do they do they know how fast they're moving? They're making like, me anxious. <laughs> making me anxious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I still love it. It's still like an, a thrill to be there, but for only so long. My threshold of what I need to feel matched is a much more settled place than what it used to be. My internal physiology was like a, a fast flickering hand and New York was like even a little bit faster at times. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I think I'm happy because <laughs> I feel like suddenly a town where I feel I belong. And then when I started to find healing, it was like, I don't think I belong here anymore. I, I don't think this supports where I want to go and have more flexibility and also slowing down and speeding up. And for those of us who have some propensity for an addiction to drama or some familiarity with it, slowing down, stillness, quietude, feels like danger. Maybe we'll just do like a quick show of hands. Has anyone ever gone to, <laughs> Nicole's already like, yeah, <laughs> that's me. Has anyone ever gone to a meditation class or a breathwork something or some type of mindfulness? And all of a sudden, maybe a minute in, you feel like your grocery list is going off. You're thinking about that fight that you had, or you're in a bathtub relaxing with bubbles. And all of a sudden you're thinking about your sixth grade math teacher or that ex-partner. So we all know it. We all know at least on some level that experience of taking ourselves out of settling, out of quietness, out of stillness. And it's actually a reflex. So we have what's called a relaxation reflex. Yeah, There's a whole physiological process of settling the muscles relax, there's more blood flow, there's more blood flow to your digestive system. It's a cascading effect. Now, if you grew up in a household of chaos or an environment of chaos, or just have a propensity for chaos, that relaxation reflex is a no-go. You have what's called an activation reflex. So you start moving down and settling or going into quietness and instead of continuing, there's an alarm that goes off that goes, whoa, 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 this isn't safe. We're going down towards the threshold of numbness and then possibly into the deep pain. So we need to kick some stuff up and you start revving yourself up. You start thinking about that grocery list. You start thinking about that fight. You start thinking about that relationship. It doesn't all have to be negative. I can be exciting. It can be like that roller coaster ride you went on last week, but that's not where you are. That's not the present moment. And there's a way of taking yourself out of the present into a hit of stress. And so 
so many of us raised our hand, we all know or have used or reflexively have experienced on some scale that addiction to drama. And Nicole, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but it's very much part of our urgency culture now to have that experience of an addiction to drama. Yeah, 100%. And one of the things I used to, you know, scream aloud as a child, it really kind yeah. of touches on this is I would always complain about, and this is the language I would use when you mm. talk a bit about boredom. I would always, you know, claim how, you know, bored I was, agitated, yet at the same time, how desperately I wanted. I like to joke, I'm a hippie at heart. I just want peace and freedom. I just want a moment to chill. Though I saw myself in that same cycle, Scott, when there mm. wasn't and always something. There wasn't the latest stress. I was in that bathtub on a Sunday, either alone or my partner was home and I couldn't feel or live into that that peace mm-hmm. because peace in and of itself felt unsafe in it. Because yeah. again, in my childhood, there was very few moments of that. So very similarly, my mind would scan and would find the something that could stress me out. Even if someone wasn't physically present, I could create that activating experience trying to avoid but for a long time was that discomfort. I would label yeah. it as boredom when in reality, it was just peace in the present moment that my body wasn't necessarily kind of wired to be able to navigate. And then in off, I went to the races in terms of achievement and all of these socially sanctioned way. And I think this is an important or a moment where we can shift a bit into our new landscape, which invites a whole social media, virtual aspect to where we could engage and get these hits, right? So now it might not be I'm alone. It's I'm alone and I'm scrolling on my phone. And if I am, you know, kind of stuck in that addicted to drama loop, we are now at our fingertips, 24 hours a day. Many of us do have access to those more stimulating or stressful environments, even the news being on, you know, loop on our television or in our phones through social media or whatever app as the latest news story, always having that ability, much like New York City, right, to engage with something stressful. So many of us walk around with that in our pockets now. Yeah. Yeah. This one person once wrote, all the world is a stage. So Shakespeare or whoever was Shakespeare. Uh, (laughs) And truly now that has manifested. All the world is a stage and we are all audiences to that stage. And what does it mean to be in performance? What does it mean that we're all narrators of either our authentic life or some avatar version of our life that helps us feel seen that feels attended to, that feels witnessed, a like is a very powerful button. A like represents, hey, I see you. And that is going to create a whole cascade of dopamine. And it's like, well, what did I do to get that like, to feel seen, to feel heard? And how do I keep doing that? So I shift from the authentic process into essentially strategizing, which becomes my social avatar. My aversion of me that is slightly or significantly performing, even if it's just changing a word, because I know that will garner more attention. And that word might not actually feel authentic, but I go, that's okay. It's functional. And the further I get from my authentic self and my social avatar, we have seen so many studies that show the greater sense of depression, because I have had depression in this way as a representation of more and more self-abandonment. The further I am from my authentic needs and feelings, 
because I am in this avatar performance. And going a little bit further, not to get too doomsy <laughs> with this, we live in what's called an attentional economy. So your attention is worth something because if I can get and keep your attention, I can sell you things. I will garner profits. I will get profits. So it's monetization of your attention, essentially. So there's all of these engineers on social media, all these engineers who create the news, all these engineers who create everything that you are visually being stimulated by or auditorially being stimulated by or any type of stimulation. And their question that they're asking is, what are the ways that I can get your attention and maintain it? The more I pull your attention, the more I pull you from you. The more we are stimulated by all the things that are popping up on our phone, that news story, I am forcing some version of a self-abandonment because I'm pulling you into what I want, not into what you need and what is present in you. And we remember that is an integral part of an addiction to drama. Now, let's get slightly more complex. <laughs> let's talk a little neuroscience. A attentional economy was developed, the, the theory of it was developed in the early, late 80s, and not by neuroscientists. So they were economists and they were brilliant. They're like, oh, the economy is really based on attention and the value that some capturing someone's attention, it does. What they were not able to articulate is what is the physiological mechanisms for capturing and maintaining someone's attention? And that, my friends, is what we call a stress response. So the more I create a stress response in you, the more attention I will get and capture. There was a study done that showed that the most liked, shared, and commented stories in the news had to do with ones that provoked anger and fear and then awe. So awe's a good one. Or it's all fine. These are all good emotions to experience at some point when they're in within our control to process and metabolize them. Because remember, if they're evoking feelings and then we're not here to process and metabolize them that replicates that same self-abandonment, that same way that eventually we are overwhelmed with feeling that has never been attended to, like a trauma. So here we are in an economy that is not just an attentional economy, but a stress activation economy. Our capitalism is formed on stressing you, on overstimulating your nervous system, and this is creating on a mass scale, replicating on a mass scale, the conditions that form an addiction to drama. Because over time, as you get flooded, as you get overstimulated by the news, by social media, by all these forms that you are taking things in so that they can maintain and capture your attention, as you get overstimulated and over flooded by it, you eventually become numb or what we call in the addiction language, tolerance. And when you hit that threshold of numbness or threshold of tolerance, you need more to feel more. They need to get you to feel more to keep your attention. So they keep revving you up 
and all these different strategies to get your attention. And it has a significant physiological response because we are also entering a culture that is less movement focused, less process focused in some ways. So we're being overstimulated and underprocessed. Now, here's a big kicker, and then we'll pause to take deep breaths and go, what are we going to do? Is we're building these level of tolerance. It's a forced level of tolerance in which we're all competing to start to feel more so that we maintain feeling alive in this world. And that urgency culture, the go, 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 is certainly creating that similar rhythm that we internalize that we have to maintain. So that activation reflex where it goes, I start to relax. And it's like, no, 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 I'm going to be swept away by the currents of the culture if I don't maintain it. Ooh, I am not going to be seen. I am not going to be heard. I am not going to survive. And as we start to settle from that upswing of stimulation, we start to experience things like boredom and anxiety, or in the addiction language, we would say withdrawal. And here we are in an addiction cycle. Some stimulus that keeps us from having a building of tolerance. So we need more to feel more despite the consequences and withdrawal that happens when we don't get it. And so what is the best way to get back from feeling that boredom and anxiety? Another hit of drama. I was just wanting to expand a bit too, because I think even outside of news, we can have our own individualized stress cycle. Maybe it's not the news that, you know, you in those down, quote unquote, boredom, bored moments, or maybe not kind of on the latest news article or outlet. I mean, for me, it's much more personal to me. I know exactly where to go online to find the things that stress me out that are, you know, messaging around other people's opinions on who I am or how I am as a person, very much like you being wired to perform, to connect, to be seen as good, to maintain my belonging in those ways. There is still a very deep wound and a concern and a fear of disappointing, for lack of a better word, other people for giving them the space to interpret or to experience me in a way that might be more unsavory than I am naturally comfortable with. And it is those moments. It's not for me, the news, it's cycling through my own version of that wounding and how I can get then those reminders objectively, you know, reference back in my face to really touch upon and affirm that deep rooted belief that I'm not worthy, that people don't or aren't interested in connecting with me or think less than of me. So inviting everyone listening that really widen because it can be different things that we find our stress, you know, kind of activations in. It might be for others looking at people or whose lives you imagine are different or in aspiration. But again, not looking at it from a hopeful perspective, looking at it through the lens of affirming how you're less than, you're unworthy. So again, we could trick ourselves to be like, well, I'm just looking at what I want but is that how you feel when you're looking? Are you done that scroll? Cause it was a quote unquote, hopeful, inspirational individual though. Are you really just feeding that deep rooted belief of how you're not that yeah. person? And I think if we are being really honest, because we all do walk around with this social landscape that you can really see represent it, anything and everyone out there that for many of us, we are using it to continue ourselves locked in that spiral. So for me, it's those moments on any given day of noticing when it is that I'm likely to spiral. For me, it's when I'm already feeling under-resourced, when my stress level is up and I'm not caring or considering 
for my own needs. I'm much more closer to that stress reactivity. And then that's one of the ways that I continue to keep myself locked in that stress cycle, not in the peaceful cycle that I'm alleging I'm interested in, right? That's when my body has overrode and that addiction to drama. And just using that as one example of, I'm imagining many of you out there listening can see in your own life, those micro moments when we are engaging with our stress, as opposed to our peaceful, our calm. Yeah. Thank you, Nicole. And it is, it's so wide. And I think the beauty of the fact that we are all human is the unique way in which we might actualize this for ourselves to sort of, again, create that unnecessary turmoil to create that unnecessary hurt where it's like, did we really need that? And a part of us will likely say, yes. Oh yeah. You really needed to feel like crap again. You really needed a reminder of of your low self-worth, but a bigger part that eventually will come out saying, I don't want this. I don't need this. That strategy is no longer serving me. Eventually we get to that. This show is also brought to you by the absolutely stunning and powerful tools for transformation that are created by Omala. Even the name Omala transports you to a place of flow and vitality. These are some of my favorite products ever, like an amazing color-changing yoga mat that responds to your temperature and presence and reflects back your posture in real time. They have this incredible smelling skin balm candle that heats up to activate all the essential oils and vitamins that your skin has been craving for. I mean, look, if I could live in a giant bath of this candle, I would 100% do it. They also have these journals that lead you into a profound insight, and then you can plant those journals to create a stunning flower garden. I mean, damn. If that's not both deep and inventive, I don't know what is. If you're someone who desires to live in a luxurious flow of life and who believes in transformative wellness, then you have to check out Omala. Omala is giving my listeners an exclusive discount to treat yourself to something that is as special as you, boo. All you have to do is go to omala.com, that's O-M-A-L-A.com. Use the discount code DRSCOTT10 at checkout. And a portion of every purchase goes to an incredible charity. You got this. I think I'll name one other piece because we were talking a lot about the individuals with an addiction to drama. And some of my favorite research is called Stress Contagium which is just a fancy word for contagious stress, that (laughs) stress, our activation, that first part of a stress response is the most contagious mirrored experience from one person to another. Another way of saying that is like, when I get stressed, you get stressed. Despite how like amazingly thoughtful you are, you cannot outrun your evolution in this regard. So sorry to say, when I get stressed, In the same way that perhaps when I settle myself, you will also have a replicated experience of that. So as more and more people are stuck in this pattern of of getting hits from stress, having to stay above the threshold, being in the fast currency of urgency culture, how they move through the world is not in isolation to how you move through the world. 
And that's a really important thing for us to understand is, I don't know if anyone in here has ever experienced someone in the throes of a drama cycle. Maybe we can do another raise, hand raise. But you'll typically go a few things like, whoa, what just happened? <laughs> Why do I feel exhausted? How did we get there? How am I involved in this? But mostly what we might not recognize is that we also have to process and mobilize that stress, that activation that needs to be completed. So we don't just get the flood without the completion of the intention of that activation. And the stress response, we get activated, which just means a feeling of energy. That's all it is to be able to adapt. That's what stress response is, is just a process of adaptation. But when we don't get to adapt, when we don't get to complete that process of adapting, that is where we get dis-ease or disease. In that incomplete stress cycle, it's not in the stimulation that we get disease. No way. Just no way. <laughs> it's in the incompletion of our biological stress cycle, which is just our adaptation cycle. And so when I go back, they're in their throes of drama, getting the hits of stress. You're getting their hits of stress. And it's really important that you figure out what strategies are needed for you to move that out. Uh, so you just have are carrying around secondhand stress, which has complications to it, physiologically, psychologically, emotionally. I'm seeing some questions come oh. in. And the question is, when we're talking about coping strategies, do you have other coping strategies other than being active? So when we are talking about moving then this oh. energy, you know, what are some options that we might have acknowledging that it is an energy internal yeah. to us? And are there any things outside of another action or activity that one can do? Yeah, tons. And Nicole, you and I can go back and forth as we <laughs> have written books with yes. many exercises in them. I'll say this is an activity, but shaking or tremoring, just a ways to discharge that energy. I'm a big fan of, so what we know in a, stress response is that we get locked into tunnel vision. We don't see the peripheral. We don't see options. And so even moving our eyes back and starting to scan the periphery, taking things in that are not the intensity, even drinking water, coming back to something that might have more neutrality to it as opposed to activation, things that stimulate the digestive process and so going back into the parasympathetic. Just another example I, I can throw out there in terms of, for me, historically, yeah. the one place I could find some version of what I would have called peace yeah. you know, for a very long time was anything natural, the natural world, mm -hmm. plants, park. So in terms of being active, of course, maybe not even getting yourself there. I actually was chatting with someone, I forget who it was recently, who shared with me some research on visualization of nature. And mm -hmm. now, I mean, we have so much technology for full immersive nature experiences where you put on these crazy 3D goggles, right? And you're in nature. But understanding that research actually is showing evidence of not only just physically being in the natural world, which activates that parasympathetic, that restive state, though, even visualizing or having those more immersive type brain mind-based experiences of being quote unquote in nature can stimulate the parasympathetic. So for me, I just share that because naturally I always notice just that slight movement into peace, feeling somewhat safer. Also nature gives us a lot to look at. 
we can listen to the birds, we can see the different colors, which can allow our body to maybe settle a bit more into the presence of that moment, as opposed to whatever stressful experiences live in our current out of nature environments. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. And as we're talking about the parasympathetic, one of the reasons or what happens in the parasympathetic, and when we talk about rest and digest, it's not just physiologically, it's also emotionally. As we settle into ourselves, we also start to feel more the emotional content of what is and was there. That's why we have that activation reflex to avoid the parasympathetic, to avoid the contact, the resting, the digesting, the processing that is important in order to recuperate. Here's another question coming yeah. in. It's somewhat of a, of a big one. I think touches on a lot of what we, we've talked about and also what, what is between the pages of your book. But Jennifer asks, my question is what to do if you've had a life of chaos and now you're trying to come out of survival mode using different tools consciously, but it's like my subconscious really wants the emotion of chaos and like my nervous system has completely shut down to peace and joy how to start introducing peace again. It's like, I can't find those within me. Oof, I can so resonate with that experience. So I just Same. thank you for your vulnerability and sharing that. First, you're in good company and you're not alone. If we can start to normalize that growing up in chaos meant that we were not afforded the luxury of feeling the good, of letting go of our vigilance and knowing that you are still whole. You are still an incredible human being, despite those needs to adapt. And I have a practice that I love called marinating in the good, which is a very titrated. So it means like little tiny pieces. So I might just go for like an apple. I might take a nibble on an apple and just say, can I stay with the taste of it? Can I stay with some things that might be more neutral or flavorful? that are not in extremes or chaos and just start to build up a embodied vocabulary of things that you can marinate in the good of. Yeah. Like this apple is not chaos. Can I feel safe enough in this moment, safe enough to taste the flavors of this apple, to smell this flower? And I don't have to take it all in. It doesn't all have to come at once. It's really a step-by-step -step process of slowly building a vocabulary of okayness and the flavors of things that are both good and okay in your embodied self. I love, and I think what's so important that I want to highlight here, Scott, in your answer is it actually is that brick by brick process of, because I think a lot of us put an unrealistic expectation. I'm not to say that Jennifer or anyone else listening is doing that, but with this idea that we will suddenly go from never having felt a moment of peace or joy to having that full embodied experience of peace and joy. And if we're seeking that, we aren't going to ever have that experience because it really does happen. And what I'm calling to mind actually is a moment where we look back on it quite often now in my relationship with Lolly, who's been my partner for upwards of about a decade. So she saw me in my prime disconnected state where she was one of the first people who's like, hello, where are you? You're not here. You're not present. I, of course, had none of this language. I thought she was like all my other partners. You're just not close enough. You're not connecting with me. It's it's you. Only to realize again that that separation, that disconnection was how far and distanced I was from myself. So coming to that awareness, building in these practices, I remember one moment 
where it was just a flash in my eye. I don't even remember what exactly we were talking about, though the way in which I was talking about whatever future thing it was, was different than my normal way I talked about the future, which was usually it's always something, when will the next something be? And a slight shift in my language. And the reason it sticks with me is Lolly's head whipped aside to me, looked at me and said, and it was nothing even about the content of which I was talking about. It was how I was talking about the future. And she said, oh my God, Nicole, I think there's a little bit of hope in there. Now, to be clear, I didn't feel hopeful. I wasn't like hanging my hopeful star up about how I, it was just a slightest of shifts. And when she reflected that back to me, I was able to take a moment and say, wow, there is something different in my felt relationship with this future. I'm not just waiting for that next shoe to drop in the moment. I wouldn't say again, I'm feeling hopeful, though it was a minor shift that of course I continued to build that foundation toward actually being able to over time embody hope, embody joy, actually have that experience of peace. But I think it's important to highlight here for Jennifer, for anyone else listening, as we are on that journey, it's not going to come in that imagined moment of this you know, peaceful experience. It's going to be in moments of first, just feeling a little less stressed by the things that typically would shift us into that drama cycle. And over time, then we might hear from someone else. It might not even be from ourselves first, that same reflection back of, oh my gosh, Jennifer, Scott, whomever, you're feeling a bit more calm. You're not feeling as stressed as you once are. And sometimes we don't even have that. We're not able to take that blinder off ourselves. At first, it is those people in our life who begin to then experience us differently that allows us then to shift out of, and we can see it in our language and our reactivity, though we're not going to feel that peace, that hope, that joy in that moment. We're going to have made a lot of different choices to first decrease the stress a bit before those feelings become that embodied experience. Beautifully said. It is very much a journey into the process of an addiction to drama and very much a journey out. One in which it's not just practices, it's not just addressing the underlying hurt or trauma or transgenerational anxiety or whatever is present. It's also a process of letting go of the identity that's been formed around it. Who am I if I'm not big? Who am I if I'm not important? Who am I if I'm not a victim? Will I still be seen? Because I formed an identity around that. Here's one coming in. Is it Sammy? And again, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing. It's a little bit smaller though. I have been on such a journey acknowledging my childhood trauma to the point where now I don't want to have children because of the anxiety of causing them mental health issues later on. How would you navigate this anxiety around having children? Just in general, a conversation, Scott, from your perspective on parenting as we begin to awaken to all of these different patterns, being addicted to drama in our, of ourself being one of them. Yeah. I come from a long lineage of people addicted to drama, and I'm really grateful for being here. Despite the challenges I've experienced and my own propensity for it. And so I understand when we have been through and processing our own hurt and our own pain and even recognizing what's happening in certain aspects of our culture that we want to protect. And I just want to honor that, that inherent desire to protect, to protect a future child or a future family. And I want to just name that when we heal, we're also healing lineage. We're breaking the cycles 
by doing the work that we're doing. Now, that future child or children or puppies or whatever the family might look like will navigate their own process in life. But to trust that you are doing something significant, something that hasn't been able to be done, perhaps even in generations, many generations. And that's that's pretty incredible. I often always, when I'm signing on to the community, um, both yeah. inside and outside of my membership, I take a moment to like you're doing, kind of acknowledge, you know, even those of us who aren't choosing to, you know, have children ourselves, me being one of those people. I mean, the impact is so great. You know, we are modeling this change for any future generation of people in relationship with us. And again, the impact really is like, I always kind of have a visual of dominoes because again, I think we diminish the impact that we're having. I know, you know, parents often do that. Mothers in particular like to, you know, kind of invalidate the enormity of the responsibility of caring and creating these safe containers for our future generations. And I think equally those of us who don't choose then to have future generations ourselves maybe diminish the impact that we can have on others. And I just think it and believe it to quite literally be the way the world will continue to change as us breaking these habits and these patterns. And on that note, another question coming in now about relationships. I think it's Mitch. Are we able to heal as a couple being in a love relationship where each of us is facing trauma or self-abandonment? Is it better to heal on our own or can we do so within a relationship? I see this question often. So when we're talking about healing our addiction to drama, what is from your perspective, the possibility of healing while in an active partnership versus outside of active partnerships. Yeah. I might go back for just a second, Nicole, because what you said was so beautiful. And I, I really appreciate it. As someone who is also not having children in this lifetime, but has an enormous family, which I call community. And I know you do too. And to honor that breaking of the cycle, the work that you are doing in this lifetime, whether it's holding the container, as you said, for a child or a family or an organization or a community that in the same way stress is contagious, so is your healing. And I really, truly believe that. I know you did too, Nicole, as you've kind of written some books about it. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of relationships, first of all, there's no universal answer to this. So I will say thank you for the question, and we can explore aspects of it without knowing there's any one right answer. I really love relational work, and that's like, I love working in family systems, personally, or couples, or having friends come, because there is something that shows up in group work in that way, and group work can even be couples work, is sometimes it's easier to see what's being mirrored to see the patterns when there's a group dynamic. And it's harder to see those at the same time in a group dynamic. So, you know, if I'm in a individual therapy role and I'm creating a container, I'm I'm supporting the process of co-regulation, it might not bring up that same pattern that's being replicated in the relationships. So sometimes we need to do one thing first on our own. We need to build up enough containment. We need to build up enough resources and support to be present with ourselves. And in fact, we typically always need to do that first. And once we have done that and we're able to stay with ourselves in relation to what's happening, it can be really powerful work to do group, couples, 
however that looks like work. Nicole, do you have a... Yeah, no, um, thank you. I think that was a very beautiful, and maybe one time for one more, because on this note then, I'm understanding and knowing a lot of, just from my own personal experience, a lot of this conversation I've been leading from the lens of like, well, what if I'm the one? So a question coming in very interesting. And again, Jenny, I apologize if I'm not seeing your name correctly. What is the best way to support someone or respond to someone if we have a person addicted to drama in our life, someone who would, in most interactions is saying things like it's just one thing after another, or it's always something, or Janie, were you my friend at one point? <laughs> you talking about me? Or what did I do to deserve this? I mean, jokes aside, what about, you know, for us on the kind of receiving end of this awareness that it is our relationships, maybe that one friend, that one family member, or maybe that one romantic partner, if we do have someone who is saying those things and in these drama cycles and obviously bringing it into dynamic with us. Yeah. There's a whole chapter in my book about how to navigate being a bird in a snowstorm. That's what I called it. <laughs> I, th- I think that was, I don't know, I can't remember the exact title, but it's something <laughs> like that. And first is please take care of you. Please don't abandon yourself because in some ways that might be your own replication of martyrdom into which you are contributing to the narrative, to the process, to the stress experience. In fact, sometimes our own addiction can look like an being really available for people who are addicted to drama. And I'm not saying that's you at all, by the way. It might've been me. (laughs) (laughs) But really clarifying, what are your boundaries? What is your availability? What is your tolerance level? You might say things like, I have 10 minutes for you today. And of that time, I would like to spend some time focusing on what's also going well for you. I hear that things don't feel good. And I acknowledge that. So essentially what I'm what we're doing in that is going from an overgeneralization to can you specifically name what's happening that you're referring to? And I'm curious what else is good. Like I'm here with you. Does that feel nice? Now that's a therapeutic tool that you don't have to use, but it is a way of sort of lessening the tension of the room and really clarifying again your boundaries is like, I hear you and I can hear you and not go into it with you. I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to ask specific questions. What did they say? How did they say that? Oh, no. <laughs> like, you know, I might say that sounds like a really painful experience. And I'm going to keep kind of a little bit softer and flatter, actually, as opposed to throwing logs on their fire. And you are allowed to say no. Just the really firm reminder that you are allowed peace in your life What they are processing their journey of navigating chaos, crisis, and the threat of peace until they can perhaps receive this book from you or other resources from other people and start to navigate it. But I just want to say you're not responsible for them because there's a cost. And I say that being on both sides of the fence in that regard of taking care of people who are very much in the throes of drama and and as well as my own, and they will feel like you're abandoning them. That is part of the narrative. And it is okay. I just want to say that it is okay. Not that they feel abandoned, not that there is abandonment, but that you are attending to yourself as part of a hopeful relationship that feels more thriving, that feels more accessible, that feels more mutual. 
I really appreciate, you know, kind of speaking to this as well, because again, I think a lot of us sometimes, especially when we're locked in these dynamics, we do think that we're being selfish or abandoning and not realizing that we are playing a role, whether it's picking up the phone call in and of itself to like you're sharing, you know, how we are prompting them the conversation around. And I had to come to that very similar, you know, reality that I was participating in other people's drama cycles as well. And one of the, obviously the primest relationships that that would happen in for me was within that family where that's where we learned how to bond. And it was me taking a really hard, honest look at the role that I was playing as I was coming to the awareness that I was addicted to these stress cycles and creating space outside of those relationships to be possibly peaceful, to move the ante or to begin to lay those stones to embodying that peace. Like we talked about earlier, I was still very much locked in those dynamics with my family in particular. And I did have to look hard and honest at that role that I was playing and and not just complain about them when I got off of the phone and I felt dumped on with the latest crisis in the family home. I had to look at the role I was playing by picking up the phone, by being available, by how I was answering the questions or reacting to what was happening and what I was even sharing in terms of my own stress, as opposed to focusing on the rest of my life. And it took a lot of hard, honest conversations and new boundaries that I set. And I saw my sister actually was on this a bit earlier. I don't know if she's still here though. Wanting to acknowledge my sister and myself for all of the shifts that we've been able to put in place that in the beginning weren't welcomed, did feel like abandonment for both of us with me separating away from this relationship that I was so consistently relied on in this stress-based way to her being on the receiving end of my new unavailability, of not going to bed with the phone next to my head in case something happened, having designated hours when I was available to receive, and then even giving myself the choice. And were often family events that they deemed were the crisis of the moment that I didn't have to in that moment, that I could actually expand my focus beyond what was happening in their home and keep an eye on what I wanted or needed to happen in my home for me. And it wasn't received with open arms. My sister wasn't necessarily supportive, though I know her heart was initially. I heard things like, how can you do this to me, to us, to the family? Family is everything and a lot of reactivity. And on the other side of that, I'm just laboring this point for a minute. It was not overnight with me acknowledging the role that I was playing and engaging in conversations that were stressful for me. I had a change. I had to set up new boundaries. I couldn't expect her to change or anyone in my life to change. I had to change the way that I was showing up. And now, years later, we have boundaries. There are things that we don't just talk about stress when we are on the phone. We both acknowledge and honor where we're at and allow the other individual to be in a different space with maybe things that are exciting to celebrate. And that came over time by, again, acknowledging the role that we're playing. So even when we are on the receiving end of these drama cycles, I think it is an important step to look at the role that we're playing in terms of, are we, like you're saying, asking, kind of stoking the fire a bit, or are we just bringing to that person the latest stress, or we don't ourselves have anything else to talk about with them? What are we bringing to the table and how are we contributing to this pattern? Again, that for a lot of us can be a shameful moment or an empowered one, because until we see the role we're playing, we're never going to be able to make those new choices. Yeah. Are we drama bonding? Drama bonding. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
Nicole, thank you so much for your beautiful presence. And it's been such an incredible delight and experience to connect with you. And to all those who came and are listening, thank you so much for being here. Your presence and your energy is truly feeling it. And so thank you so much. It's been beautiful. And we look forward to staying in connection. And thank you all so much for coming to this. Nicole and I both feel like it's such an important topic. So thank you so much, Nicole. Be in touch. Yes, Thanks. of course. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for including me on your journey. Thank you for who you are as a human and you know, speaking in the way that you speak, sharing so much of your own journey as you did, not only on your platform in general, but within the pages of this book. I truly say that it is as all of us feel safer in a safer community container to be able to even engage some of these conversations that Again, the impact isn't lost on me. So all of you humans who follow Scott in any of the ways on any of the platforms who will pick up this book, who are even signed on to this event in and of itself, know and give yourself that moment of celebration that affirm the impact that you can and will continue to have. And we can't do this together. So I'm truly honored to be alive at this time, surrounded by so many beautiful souls that, again, in my opinion, are truly changing the world. So thank you for having me and thank you all for listening. Thank you, love. And thank you for being such an inspiration who all of you are thank you all thank you thank you for listening to the gently used human podcast with dr scott lyons and friends visit gentlyused.com for fun extras including submitting your questions for advice from a midwestern mom and don't forget to spill the tea and gossip about the show with all your friends and frenemies And show some love by giving us five stars and leaving a review in your favorite apps. This helps us connect with all the other gently used humans out there. Oh, and by the way, you look fierce today.